I love living in Colorado for so many reasons. And near the top of the list is the fact that it actually snows here. I love the Rocky Mountains covered in snow for so many reasons. Skiing down them is fantastic. I love the cathedral in snow. It's magical. And I have a sense that you're going to hear me talking about snow for a long, long time. <laughs> but the real reason that I love it is that it solves, it solves an existential crisis stemming from my southern childhood. In the South, we get the promise of snow. The meteorologist, in a thrilling voice, announces that it's coming tomorrow. The grocery store is packed. The bread is gone. Milk is nowhere to be found. And when the promise is really thrilling and dramatic, the schools are closed in advance. Airports, too. And when that happens, I could barely sleep just for the excitement of what was coming in the morning. And I would awaken to what was promised to be buckets of snow, and there were no buckets to be found. No white anywhere. The worst time was one time they closed school at about 5 o'clock, and I was just bursting thrilled that we would not be in school the next day. And when I awakened the next morning, not only were there no buckets of snow, but they announced that school was actually opening. (laughs) The promises during Advent can sound a little bit like the meteorologist's promise of snow in the South. Hark of thrilling voice is sounding. Christ is nigh, it seems to say. That the promise that Christ is coming and Christ is so close. That Christ will come not only at the end of time, but perhaps tomorrow morning. This day that we all long for in various sorts of ways. This day that is promised through all kinds of magical imagery in the scriptures. The day in which the crooked shall be made straight and the rough edges made smooth. The day we long for. But a day that's very hard to set our clocks to. Because we don't know exactly when it's coming. It sounds magical. It's beautiful to sing all of this stuff. It feels great in many, many ways for some of us. But when we pause to think about it, to hear it in the way that a child might hear it, it can be a little bit confusing. Even as we grow older, sometimes it grows even more confusing if our ways are crooked And our edges far from smooth. When will all of that change, we ask, intellectually and sometimes emotionally? Deep in the DNA of Episcopalians is a need to understand. A need to think. We are God's intellectual children. And that is a great gift that we bring to Christianity and to the world But sometimes that's a difficult gift to bear because a lot of what's at the heart of the Christian faith are are mysteries. And the deal with mysteries, they have so many various layers of meaning. 
that the mind stumbles and realizes that it can never fully explain what we're experiencing, much less what we long for. But to try and think and explain, we must. Paul's letter to the Philippians is really about Advent and this great mystery, implicitly at least. Literally, it's not. Paul is writing from prison and he's writing in a day and age in which the season of Advent, much less these hymns, had not even been invented yet. But the great themes of this letter, the reason why we read them each Advent, is because it concerns the mystery of time and Christ's coming and our role in that in light of the evidence that we see only too clearly before our eyes. Paul writes from prison. This is one of those prison letters. He had been imprisoned because he had taken Gentiles into the interior of the temple, a crime that was punishable by death. Paul, a Jew, a Pharisee, but the great missionary to the Gentiles. So he writes this letter from prison. Now, Paul is complex. I know that. You know that. Paul is, in part, the organizer of the church, and thank God for that, because if we were left to Jesus to organize things, we wouldn't have gotten very far. (laughs) Jesus is the savior of the church, but it takes a pastoral, organized mind and hands to, to get things headed in the right direction, so to speak. Paul is, because he's an organizer and a pastor, and I say this as one, he is sometimes obsessive. And unfortunately, sometimes puritanical. And there are parts of his letters that that are just so painful and don't work for us. And it's a poignant reminder when we read Paul, as with other parts of the scriptures, that for Episcopalians, the Bible, and Paul especially, is not infallible. Paul is not perfect. Only God is all-knowing. And wouldn't you have loved to receive some of the responses to Paul's letters from people writing back to him. (laughs) Paul, at his best, is is a poet. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongue of mortals and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul is a theologian, and in one sense the first Episcopalian, he was trying to reconcile Christ and the intellectual climate of the world in which he lived, especially Stoicism. And Paul reaches this crescendo when he writes what is perhaps the first poem, um, perhaps the first hymn in the Christian church in the New Testament that we have. And it's this intellectual ode to who Christ is in relationship to knowledge. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though being in the form of God, humbled himself into the form of a servant. Incredible image that we always meet the Christ who is this union of divinity and servanthood, this union of mystery and simplicity in the form of a servant always. It's in this letter from prison 
that Paul writes about his existential crisis, a crisis that makes all the sense in the world if you imagine where he is and what he's been brought to. He writes here, I'm constrained between these two desires, the desire to depart and be with Christ, and yet the desire to live and to be here with you and to perhaps be reunited one day when I get out of this cell. It is possibly the darkest moment in the New Testament. Paul wrestling within his psyche between dying and going to heaven, being with Christ, the afterlife, whatever that is, and yet living and remaining committed to his relationships, to his life, even to that cell. And he's wrestling between those two. And it's in this letter and others like it that he determines that he will live. And that's why this line is so beautiful that we heard read so beautifully. I thank my God every time I remember you in my prayers. That's how Paul reconciles this division between them. He will live. He will pray. Wherever Christ is in the afterlife, we know for certain that Christ is right here in the middle of these relationships. Last week, I think we read the most beautiful line from Paul in Thessalonians where he says, I long to see you again face to face. My New Testament professor, often hear her voice when I preach, and she says about this letter to the Philippians that we get the sense that Christ is the center of the theology of the church, but more importantly, that Christ is the emotional center of every Christian, the emotional center of how we relate to one another in the most practical sense. Advent is about the mystery of time and how God's time is continually unfolding in our lives in ways that we cannot understand and how it is even that time might be conceived as our friend and not an enemy and miracle of all enemies miracle of all miracles that we actually have more time than we realize even eternity. But in the midst of this mystery that the mind cannot fully comprehend, there is this incredibly practical promise that we can hold on to, that we can understand, that we can articulate, that we can live, that we can give our hearts to. And it's this, it's this promise, that Christ will come at the end of time, yes, But that second coming will be remarkably similar to the first coming on Christmas morning. And so it is with every moment in which we meet or discover Christ throughout the course of our lives. Christ comes to us face to face. Christ meets us in the most personal and even emotional ways which means that we discover Christ and Christ coming each time we look into the face of our neighbor. And really, miracle of all miracles, in the face of the one that we see in the mirror.